Before we begin, don't forget that if you want to hear this episode ad-free, then sign up to our members channel. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes. Members will get exclusive access to all episodes of Smoking Gun, completely ad-free, before anyone else. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Cicidium floridum palo verde tree is a spiny green deciduous shrub native to the southwest states of the U.S., In the summer months, the plants produce edible pods, similar in flavour and appearance to edamame beans or peas. They grow in conditions other plants would struggle. The Sonoran Desert of southern Arizona, the hottest desert in both the US and Mexico, where temperatures routinely exceed 48 degrees Celsius, is one place they thrive. In the flat landscape just outside Phoenix, there isn't much that catches the eye. Long, straight roads disappear into the baking heat of the desert horizon. The greeny-yellow of the Palo Verde trees are one of the only notable sights in an otherwise dry, dusty and flat terrain. Just off the intersection of Jackrabbit Trail Drive and Indian School Road, there is one such shrub that did more than catch the eye. In the summer of 1992, one tree in particular drew the attention of detectives investigating a heinous and puzzling murder case. A case where standard forensic testing revealed nothing. The shrub in question would go on to be named PV-30, and the shedding pods of PV-30 would turn out to be the missing element, the smoking gun, in the search for a heartless killer. My name is Romola Gary, and I'm an actress who's always been fascinated by how criminal cases are solved, the amazing processes that go on behind the scenes, the clues that clinch the case. And my name is Tracy Alexander. I'm the president of the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. I've spent years inside these processes searching for those clues. I've dedicated my career to using science to help the course of justice, and my work has ensured that hundreds of criminals have gone to prison and the wrongly accused go free. Together, we are going to lift the lid on some of the most extraordinary cases from around the world. We'll discover how, with the help of science, everyday items have become the key to catching a killer. From What's the Story Sounds, this is Smoking Gun. The Seed Pod. Sunday the 3rd of May, 1992. 
Tim Faulkner wakes up on his day off work, wanting to blow off some steam. The area that surrounds his home near Phoenix, Arizona, made fertile ground for exploring on his dirt bike. Dusty, untouched trails, with nobody around to anger with the loud roar of his two-stroke Yamaha off-roader. After a hasty breakfast of scrambled eggs and black coffee, he switched on the ignition and revved out of his garage onto the remote trails of western Maricopa County. He sped along in joyful ignorance, taking in the fresh air, totally unaware of what lay ahead. As Tim made his way into a locale known as the Caterpillar Proving Grounds, something caught his eye. Through his dusty helmet visor, he spotted what appeared at first glance to be the nude body of a woman. Startled, he hit the brakes, kicking up a wall of dust as he skidded to a halt and nearly tumbling over his handlebars in the process. He paused to catch his breath before switching off the engine and removing his helmet. He wiped the sweat from his brow before gathering himself and approaching the body. His suspicions were instantly confirmed. He turned on his heel and jumped back onto his bike, his heart pounding as he raced home. He abandoned the bike in his yard, the Yamaha falling loudly onto its side in his haste to make it to the phone. His fingers trembling, he dialed 911. The sound of sirens soon filled the air, as officers of the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office arrived in numbers on the scene. What lay in wait for them was truly disturbing. The woman, who they found lying face down in the dirt, had her arms and legs bound by shoelaces and metal wiring, which was cutting into her flesh. After a quick sweep of the scene, her clothing was found, having been scattered around the immediate area. The only item of clothing on her person was a T-shirt which had been wrapped around her neck. A close examination of her body revealed the presence of wet blood. This was a significant discovery. Given the scorching summer weather, it suggested her murder had been committed very recently. The detectives eventually made way for the crime scene investigators, who took over the scene and began taking photos and bagging evidence. Once everything had been carefully catalogued, officers took the woman's body to the nearest medical examiner. On the mortuary table, the pathologist took the woman's fingerprints. She was identified as Denise Johnson, a 30-year-old single mother of two. Denise had grown up in Phoenix and was raised by a loving family. But as high school graduation loomed and the next phase of her life was on the horizon, she ended up falling in with a bad crowd. She took a liking to booze, drugs and partying. She funded this through her work as a prostitute, as well as a sideline in dealing drugs. Denise moved in a world where dodgy deals and double-crossing were commonplace an occupational hazard she would come to embrace. She had no qualms about ripping people off and soon built a reputation for swindling her clients. 
she was known to shortchange truck drivers in drug deals and earned a nickname as a result, becoming known as Twist Mama. Once police had successfully identified the body of Denise Johnson, they began the exhaustive effort to understand how she had come to be killed. Detectives struck a problem early on. It transpired that the area they were searching was an abandoned factory. The likelihood of witnesses was, therefore, low. But the community was not used to such police presence. For Chad Gilliam, the flashing blue lights and white forensic tents on the ground nearby his home prompted a significant memory from the night before. Chad was taking the scenic route home from a friend's party in the early hours of Sunday morning. His route took him past the abandoned factory called the Caterpillar Proving Grounds. As he passed the entrance to the plot, the bright headlights of a white six-wheeler pickup truck caught his sleepy gaze. The truck was leaving the abandoned factory grounds and sped off towards Interstate 10. To Chad, this was unusual. He knew the property well. He knew it was abandoned. Why would someone be driving there past midnight? Detectives had a lead, but it was a weak one. Plenty of Arizonans drive white six-wheeled pickup trucks. They needed much more to go on. So officers continued combing the crime scene. By this point, they'd had results back from the autopsy. Denise had been strangled to death. She'd been beaten and possibly raped. But the autopsy found nothing to identify the perpetrator. At the scene, a photographer had taken some aerial photographs. Once developed, he noticed an area of matted grass near to where Denise's body had been found. This could have been consistent with a struggle. It also indicated her body had been dragged a short distance too, and it was in amongst the matted grass that a key piece of evidence would make itself apparent. Hushed, the detectives moved closer and closer to the source of the sound, until they landed on it. A pager. Mark Bogan worked as a trucker. He lived an 18-minute drive from the Caterpillar Proving Grounds with his girlfriend, Rebecca Franklin. On the night of the 2nd of May, 1992, he had been drinking heavily, downing whiskey after whiskey until he'd drained the bottle. Rebecca was used to it, but knew better than to be around him during these times. When Mark had had one too many, he could be deeply unpleasant. So at 8.30 that night, sensing Mark was about to cross that all-too-familiar threshold, Rebecca packed up and went instead to spend her Saturday evening with friends. By the time she got back, at around 11.30, Mark was nowhere to be seen. Again, this was hardly unusual. Rebecca brushed her teeth and went to bed. But what was unusual was the state in which Mark returned. Rebecca woke up when he entered their bedroom in the early hours of the morning. She looked at the bedside clock and saw it was 2am. She sighed, preparing to tell Mark off for disturbing her sleep, but stopping herself 
when she noticed he had a couple of scratch marks on his face. Scratch marks that weren't there when she'd last seen him at 8.30. Naturally, she quizzed him. How had these scratches suddenly appeared? Mark told her he'd been in a bar fight. Again, this wasn't implausible. So Rebecca, this time joined by Mark, fell back to sleep and thought nothing more of it. The discovery of the pager amongst the grass would prove to be a crucial link for detectives investigating the murder of Denise Johnson. They quickly learned that it was registered to a local man named Earl Bogan, so they decided to pay him a visit. When they knocked on his door, Earl hardly recognised it. It definitely wasn't his. But then he recalled that he had given his son, Mark, a pager to use for work. Police drove round to Mark Bogan's home and brought him in for questioning. The bar brawl story he told Rebecca the night before soon went out of the window. Instead, Mark had an altogether more colourful version of events to relay to police. As he sat across from detectives in the stuffy interrogation room at the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office, he explained that his path had indeed crossed with Denise Johnson's the previous night. He recounted how he'd stopped off to make a phone call at a truck stop when she'd approached him and asked for a lift. He had happily obliged. The lift soon turned into a consensual sexual encounter in the back of his truck. Mark explained that afterwards, as they drove down the long, empty Interstate 10, he told her to get out. At this point, Denise swiped his wallet and several other items from the dashboard, before taking off as fast as her legs could carry her. According to Mark, he jumped out of the cab, chased her down and recovered his wallet. Denise was no shrinking violet and a brief altercation resulted in the scratch marks on his face. But that was the end of the encounter. Nothing more sinister than a skirmish. He definitely hadn't killed her. It wasn't until the next morning, Mark said, that he even noticed his pager was missing. Crucially, Mark was adamant that he hadn't stepped foot in the caterpillar-proving grounds in years. For the police, Mark's story was frustratingly plausible. They didn't believe it, but they couldn't prove it was wrong. Denise had been known to steal from clients and there was no evidence linking Mark to the crime scene, other than an inconclusive eyewitness account. The autopsy had given no further clues as to the identity of the killer. It was simple. If Mark hadn't been at the Caterpillar Proving Grounds as he claimed, then he hadn't killed Denise. Homicide detective Charlie Norton started his week wrapping up an old case. As he was sat in his office writing up notes, a call came in. The voice down the line told him he was going to be assigned the Denise Johnson murder. Another officer explained to Norton that the case risked going cold. They'd been hit with dead ends from the outset. He hung up and leaned back in his chair. He thought long and hard, what should I do? 
Norton's first idea was to go back to the crime scene and look for any clues that had been missed. He trusted the forensic team who'd completed the initial search, but his experience led him to know that fresh eyes could prove vital. Armed with a camera and a notepad, he drove to the Caterpillar Proving Grounds. As he familiarised himself with the dry shrubland, he noticed something seemingly unusual. Near where he'd parked his standard-issue Chevy Camaro on the pavement, he noticed a branch hanging over a dirt trail. It was the branch of a Palo Verde tree, and on it was what looked like a fresh abrasion, like something had rubbed up against it recently. It could have been totally insignificant, but he was a diligent detective. So he photographed the tree and took a couple of the seed pods from it and added it to the growing evidence collection. Mark Bogan owned a white pickup truck, one very similar to the vehicle Chad Gilliam had spotted leaving the Caterpillar Proving Grounds on the night of Denise's murder. Needless to say, it was seized. But once the truck made it into the Maricopa County lot, investigators came up against yet more dead ends. As they scoured the cab of the truck, going over every inch of it with a fine tooth comb, they were surprised by the total absence of forensic links to Denise. As we know, Mark told police he'd had intercourse with her in that very cab, an activity that would typically leave behind significant biological evidence. But there was nothing. When officers went on to search the cargo bed of the pickup truck, they initially had the same problem. Nothing of note to report. They did, however, find two inconspicuous, seemingly inconsequential, green seed pods tucked into one corner. They were deemed unremarkable by those searching the truck, but crucially, Detective Norton felt they warranted a second look. Coffee in hand, he sat reading the report of the truck search. As he flicked through page by page, he grew increasingly frustrated, the vein in his temple growing larger by the paragraph. Mark Bogan really might not be his man, he thought to himself. But then came the seed pods, found in the back of the truck. It was a stretch, he thought to himself, what if these seed pods came from the tree he'd spotted at the scene a day earlier? The one with the fresh abrasion? What if Mark Bogan's truck had brushed up against the Palo Verde tree and caused two pods to come loose and fall into the cargo bed? How would one even go about working out such a thing? After all, there are tens of thousands of Palo Verde trees in the Phoenix area alone. But Norton couldn't shake the idea that he was onto something, and he trusted his gut. So, formulating his pitch as he walked, he took the stairs up to his boss's office. He knocked on the door, and after he was invited in, explained his theory. To his pleasant surprise, his boss liked it. More than that, Norton's boss had an idea of his own. Could DNA testing be done on the seed pods found in the truck and compared to those found on the tree at the crime scene? 
the tree that now had the name PV30. Immediately, Norton ran downstairs and got on the phone. He flicked through the yellow pages, dialing the numbers of expert after expert, asking if this could be done. He was told it was impossible. He was told it could be possible, but the cost would be prohibitive. But eventually, 15 calls later, he got the response he wanted from a University of Arizona professor just a hundred miles away in Tucson. Dr. Timothy Helen Jarris was a professor of molecular genetics at the University of Arizona. When a call came in from a detective in Phoenix asking for help, he saw it as an opportunity. He thought that this work could show the public that the science of plant DNA was relevant in a way that was not as immediately obvious as, for example, in agriculture. DNA, or deoxyribonucleic acid, is present in all cells of all living things. Its structures encode hereditary information. The code that, to a large extent, makes us who we are. DNA molecules are long chains made up of four chemical bases, adenine, guanine, cytosine and thymine. In humans, our ability to distinguish one person's DNA from another's depends on the sequence variation of these nitrogenous bases. Detective Norton packed up the seed pods from PV30 and the seed pods from Mark Bogan's car and sent them on to Dr. Helen Jarris's state-of-the-art labs in Tucson. The test typically done on human DNA could not be done on the Palo Verde tree, as there wasn't a sufficient population sample size for comparison. Such mapping had not been done for most plant species, and would have taken several months at significant cost. So Helen Jarris employed an alternative procedure, one discovered in the 1980s by the British doctor Alec Jeffries, who discovered sections of junk DNA called short tandem repeats. These are repeated sections of DNA represented by the letters of the amino acids adenine, guanine, cytosine and thymine. And it's the numbers of those repeats at specific loci along the DNA strand that are looked at in order to consider the uniqueness of an individual in a population. Primers are used to cut out known sections of this junk DNA, which were at that time separated using an agarose gel. To test the pods, Helen Jarris removed the seeds from their pods. It was important to separate them, as the seeds themselves will contain the DNA of both the mother tree and the tree responsible for pollination. Once he had the pods alone, they were placed into liquid nitrogen and ground into a fine powder prior to extraction but the resultant DNA sample taken from the ground pods was too small for analysis. Cue the polymerase chain reaction technique, or PCR, sometimes referred to as genetic photocopying. This technology is used to amplify the amount of DNA available. It was first used in a criminal case in 1986, but plant DNA had never been used in a criminal case before. Helen Jarris had to heat and cool the pod's DNA samples under controlled conditions to exponentially reproduce or amplify them. The heating and cooling is repeated 
doubling the amount of DNA in each cycle until there is sufficient sample size for analysis. Dr. Helen Jaris next placed the DNA into the lanes of an agarose gel and then subjected them to an electrical charge. As DNA is negatively charged, it will migrate towards the positive diode. The smaller sections will migrate more quickly, thereby separating the DNA into an identifiable profile. The outcome is similar to a distinct barcode. What he found was remarkable. The two pods in Mark Bogan's trucks came from the same tree. They came from PV30, the tree at the scene of Denise Johnson's murder. The circumstantial evidence linking Mark Bogan to the crime scene was certainly interesting for the detectives, but at the end of the day, it was inconclusive. Put in front of a jury, it would likely prompt reasonable doubt, and they would ultimately acquit. So, Dr. Helen Jarris's discovery was a major breakthrough. If correct, it placed Mark Bogan at the scene of the crime, somewhere he strongly denied ever visiting. But there was still a long way to go. The investigative team understood that this was groundbreaking science and therefore would be tested to its limits in any ensuing criminal trial. They needed to make it airtight. So, as well as testing the DNA of PV30, Dr. Helen Jarris and his team were tasked with testing the trees in the surrounding area. All of them showed distinct DNA barcodes. This added weight to the conclusion that the pods found in Bogan's car matched those from PV30 and was not a coincidence. It added weight to their operating theory, but once again, it was inconclusive. The test only involved 12 trees. They knew the defence would push back. Detective Norton had delivered a great case to the prosecution attorney, William Clayton, but he understood the science would be scrutinised. As Clayton sat reading the results of the initial study, he pondered how his prosecution team could sufficiently convince a judge and a jury that all the Palo Verde trees across Arizona had their own DNA code, that the scientific conclusions were reliable. William Clayton came up with an ingenious plan. He sent his deputy off for the day to drive around Arizona, collecting pods from dozens of different Palo Verde trees. An unenviable task. In total, 100 more were collected. These new pods were sent to Dr. Halinjaris' lab for further testing. But amongst the 100 pods from new and random trees was one from PV30, the tree at the crime scene. He kept this fact from the professor. Dr. Helen Jarris got to work on the new batch of pods. The tireless effort took days to complete. One by one, he found distinct DNA barcodes, until he didn't. Confused, he picked up the phone to William Clayton. He explained that his results showed one of the supposedly random trees was an exact match to the PV30 tree. To Helen Jarris, it was a problem. It showed the testing wasn't reliably precise. But down the line, Clayton was smiling. 
Helen Jarris's findings were all the proof he needed that the professor had passed his secret test. He had found the one hidden pod from PV30. His testing would withstand judicial scrutiny. To Clayton, an avid American football fan, it felt like a touchdown in the end zone. The seed pods turned out to be the smoking gun he so desperately needed. Mark Bogan was arrested and charged with the murder of Denise Johnson. At the trial, the prosecution put forward a separate circumstantial version of events for the jury to consider. They argued that, yes, he had in fact met Johnson at a truck stop when she asked for a lift. And initially, any sexual encounter between the pair had been consensual. She had even, according to the prosecution's case, consented to some light bondage, which explained why her wrists and ankles had been tied. But after a while, she had objected to his behaviour and withdrawn her consent. She tried to escape, but Bogan chased her. Hindered by the lace around her ankles, Bogan soon caught Denise, dragging her to the ground where he strangled her with her own T-shirt. In the struggle, it is likely he lost his pager. As he was driving away in a frenzy, his white six-wheeled truck grazed the low-hanging Palo Verde tree, causing two seed pods to fall into the truck's cargo bed. The judge had an important decision to make. Was the evidence proving the pods were a match admissible in court? It was problematic. Never before had a criminal case in the US used a DNA comparison of plant material as a piece of evidence. The defence argued strongly that the evidence should be struck out, that in fact, the scientific consensus on the short tandem repeat DNA procedure was far from accepted. Superior Court Judge Susan Bolton listened carefully to both the defence and prosecution experts on the issue. Ultimately, she held that SDR technology was generally accepted in the scientific community. Even the defence's expert, a well-regarded geneticist called Dr. Paul Keim, conceded that the science was valid. In allowing the evidence into trial, Judge Bolton set a precedent, breaking new legal and forensic ground. Mark Bogan's defence tried next to argue that the pods had been planted in the truck, that someone from the police had seen they were missing a key link and sought to manufacture one through an improbable route. Of course, the first rebuttal to this argument was that the police would be unaware they could rely on such evidence, having never used plant DNA before. Moreover, it transpired that the pods had been found in his truck and stored as evidence before the samples were taken and sent for the DNA test. The prosecution argued the timelines didn't suggest anything sinister. The evidence stemming from Palo Verde tree number 30 added scientific rigour to other damning testimonies, including Chad Gilliam's eyewitness report of seeing the white six-wheeled truck leaving the crime scene, including Rebecca Franklin's evidence that he had the opportunity, and including the fact 
his pager was found on the scene. The jury sided with the prosecution. Despite the defence's best efforts to rubbish the scientific evidence relating to the pods, Mark Bogan was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for a minimum of 25 years. His appeal was later rejected by the Arizona Court of Appeal. Bogan continued to maintain his innocence. Denise Johnson's mother later said of her daughter's killer, I don't know what in the world could have tripped him off to hurt her like that. I don't know. But I hope one day we'll find out. Smoking Gun is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's narrated by me, Romola Gary, and by me, Tracy Alexander. Executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. The series is supported by the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. Their work supports the international fight to improve forensic techniques, to share ideas and develop the crime-solving scientific advances of the future. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give it a rating and review and help to spread the word. You can listen to a new episode of Smoking Gun every week wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to listen to all episodes right now, you can find them completely ad-free on our subscription channel, What's the Story Crime. On there, you'll also get exclusive access to a whole bunch of bonus interviews led by me, where I speak to some of the most experienced and skilled forensic scientists from around the world and find out more about what they do. Those interviews are only available on What's the Story Crime. There's also a whole range of brilliant true crime content all made by the same team. You can check out The Missing, with more than 60 episodes all about long-term missing people, which invites you to try and help solve the case. You'll also find exclusive series like Jigsaw, true crime investigations like 900 Degrees, and incredible stories told over several parts. Whatever you're into, if you enjoy listening to Smoking Gun, we're sure you'll find your next must-listen podcast on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just search for What's the Story Crime. Subscribe, and you'll get all your favourite shows ad-free. For listeners on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or any other platform, all you need to do is click the link in our show notes or visit www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime. Your subscription helps to ensure we can keep making more of the content you love. And it costs just $3.99 per month.